Hello and welcome back to The Best Podcast. I'm very excited today to be talking to Dr. Ginevra Williams, who you've already encountered uh, within Best. She's done webinar for us and also has guested on some of the singing teacher training weekends that we've done. And today we're going to get deep and personal. We're going to find out um, about Ginevra's journey and what she's doing and um, how you know, life is going on with uh, her at the moment. So welcome to the podcast, Ginevra. Hi, Lynn. Nice to be there. My first question to my guests is usually, how did you get started? So what's your singing journey and how did you get into teaching? Well, I think singing is something, and we can all look back and say, well, I've always sung. Mm -hmm. And I always did sing as a child, and I sang in the church choir, and I sang, I did, belonged to a, a very low-level theatre school, which meant that we did shows twice a year and I was always up on stage doing it um, with no training, no real guidance at all, but just having fun. And it wasn't until I got to university that I took singing lessons and took singing a bit more seriously. And then I got about halfway through my first year at university, I was studying botany and zoology. And, uh, and then I thought, actually, yeah, I fancy being an opera singer. I'm going to do that. <laughs> so I just changed, changed to music. And um, it's a bit of a long story, but that was, that was how I got there and went off to the Guildhall and trained as a postgraduate. Right. So how and, far... I was an opera singer for many yeah. years. Yeah. So how far and what, what kind of work were you doing as an opera singer? I was doing, I, I started off, I left college and went uh, on contract with Welsh National Opera as a chorus member, but they also would give me, I mean, they were very good with their chorus members and they had, I had a role every season with them as well. So I was kept busy doing all sorts of small roles for them. Then when I left Welsh National Opera, I branched out into bigger roles with smaller companies and smaller roles with big companies. And I think I got a bit stuck doing that. And for various reasons, technical insufficiency, lack of understanding of the voice, a um, bit of frustration with the lifestyle. I wasn't that good at traveling and being away from home all the time. And, um, so gradually, bit by bit, I sort of extricated myself from that world and teaching gradually, bit by bit, took over. Mm. And I found that uh, teaching, really, I found much more challenging, much more exciting, um, difficult on another level, just, just really uh, challenging intellectually. So what prepared you for teaching? Like when you were at Guildhall, did you feel like you learnt anything about how to be a singing teacher or understand your voice? To be honest, I learned very little about how to sing. Um, most of what I learned was, was sort of picked up um, from conversations with people from just working it out myself. So when I started teaching, I actually started teaching before I went to college. And um, I knew absolutely nothing about how to teach singing. 
but I knew a fair bit about how to perform. Mm. And so I started off just teaching songs to children and getting them to perform the songs with meaning and musical expression and a bit of joy mm. in, the, in the singing. And gradually I started to work things out. And when I think back, actually, some of the things I was teaching, I started teaching the choristers at Westminster Abbey when I was, um, I mean, I was about 24. So I was quite young and, and totally without a clue, really. But I think back to some of the little sayings I had with them, and I still use those sayings now. Uh, one of them used to be, if in doubt, wiggle it. And so... <laughs> And I would say, you know, if you think you might be holding on to something or gripping or pushing or anything, and you think you might be, but you don't know whether you are, wiggle it. And if it moves, then you're not holding on. So, and that, I still use that now. Yeah. So now so, probably there's a little bit more knowledge and substance behind that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I probably gave them all sorts of, of uh, directions that were probably not very helpful or... You know, I didn't, I really didn't know what I was doing. So what did you do then to gather the information that you needed to become a better teacher? What, were, were you reading particular things or did you do any courses, workshops? Yeah, I made a lot of mistakes. I got mm. a lot of things wrong. I always try and question everything I do. You know, why does that work? Why would that function i i actually did marybeth dames course um in the 90s 1999 i did her anatomy course mm. and that sort of kicked me off into discovering function and how we can look at at the anatomy of the larynx of the vocal tract of the, the entire body and work out how it does certain things and, uh, and she was great because she would say, you can't just look at a cadaver. You can't just look at the, the muscles and say, well, that attaches one end to that, one end to that. Therefore, when I contract it, that will move because it doesn't always work like that. Mm. And muscles work in teams and they work in balance and they, a lot of their work is for stability rather than movement. So, and she was very, very good at getting me to question things. Yes. Yes. And, um, and so I got my great big netter book of anatomy and I've spent hours and hours and hours with that book, mm. looking at it, working things out, moving around, um, just seeing, trying things out. Mm. I've also done a lot of um, trying things out when I'm doing other activities like yoga or running or swimming or and just working out how the body works, mm. why, why is that? Mm. Um, I was talking to a student this morning about yoga and saying how when you are in a complex balance pose in yoga, you have to be totally in the moment. You've got to be there. You cannot think about anything else at all because as soon as you think about something else, you land on your face. And so it's, it's a really good mindfulness exercise. And it's what happens when we perform. Yes. We're completely in the moment. You just haven't got space to think about anything else. And you haven't got space to think about what your body's doing, really, mm. and what your voice is doing. That's got to be habit by that point. 
Yeah. So we learn all sorts of very useful lessons, I think, from other disciplines. Yes, and that's um, something that Mary Beth brought into her more recent teaching, wasn't it? Yeah, totally. I mean, and she was talking about playing tennis a lot mm-hmm. 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, and of course, I've read, I've read and I've read and I've read. I have read so many books and so many references. And <laughs> I've now, I put all my references onto EndNote, which is a, a um, data program for storing all the information. And um, I started doing that probably 15 years ago. And, uh, and now I've got up to uh, well over a thousand references on there and that's all stuff that I've read and made notes mm-hmm. on them. Mm-hmm. you know so that's that kind of goes in so what was was there anything in particular that you felt was the most useful for you for understanding the voice in terms of uh how it functions and how you can help a student sing better well it's been a journey Lynn, because I I what I understood 20 years ago is not what I understand now right how's that changed um effort levels I think when I was working out what for example with breathing what the abdominal muscles are doing um in order to exhale and doing a lot of work on on moving them and and feeling that connection now I'm very much um, of the mind that, yes, you need to train those responses. So you need to do your hissing and buzzing exercises and, and get the abdominal wall very loose and very, not, but it doesn't need to move very much. And once you've got that habit learned in, you probably don't need to go back there very often. So you start your warm up with a little bit of hissing and buzzing. And then you don't need to think about it. You don't need to work hard and you don't need to engage those muscles consciously. Um, it'll, it'll happen. So it, the, the more I do, the less I do. Yes, that's, that's quite a common adage, isn't it, from many expertise, um, yeah. areas of expertise. People will say the more I, do, the more I learn, the less I realise I need to do. But you probably yeah. go on that journey, don't you? to explore yeah. first to be able to let go so how did the um how did you then decide to go into a phd was was that something that you'd always thought about or did someone encourage no you? absolutely not um my husband had just finished his phd and i knew exactly what it entailed and there was no way i wanted to do that but uh, the simple truth was i wanted there were questions that i needed answers for I was teaching the choristers in St. Paul's Cathedral and I wanted to know if intensive training was doing any harm to them. Right. I, I, I needed to know that we, were, that we weren't doing it, causing them any problems and if we were, then we needed to sort it out and address it. So I just wanted to know how much one can train a child voice and without causing problems. Yeah. So... And it, if you're re- if you are working on children and doing research on children, the ethical considerations are very strict, and you can't just take kids in and do experiments on them. You have to go through a university, and in order to go through a university, you've either got to be doing a PhD or you've got to be postdoctoral. So there wasn't an option. 
Mm. And how long did it take you? Um, well, it, it actually took about seven years in total because mm. um, I had a baby in the middle of it and I went to live in America for a while and came back again and, you know, various mm. life kind of gets in the way and you <laughs> you put things on hold for a bit and, and then come back to it. And uh, I got there in the end. Yeah. So what was it that you, what was the biggest thing you got out of that research then? The big answer to my question was that the boys who were the most intensively trained had the healthiest voices, which was a big surprise, actually. I thought they would be just a little bit unhealthy, but they weren't. They were, uh, they had high levels of, or high incidence of low-level disorder. So they were, a lot of them were a bit tired a lot of the time, but very few of them had anything more serious than that. And all my control groups of boys in other situations, their voices were much worse. Hmm. And this so, led you on to writing your book? Yeah, well, the book came um, because there isn't a book on how to teach singing to children. And that frustrated me because I would have liked that book when I started teaching singing to children. Well, I know many so, teachers who are very grateful for that book. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> Good. Well, it was fun doing it, actually, um, because I'd been teaching singing teachers how to teach children for quite some time. And so it was really just writing down what I said. Mm. But then when you write it down, it's got to be right and you've got, you've, you've got to go back over and over and over it and think, is that actually, could that be misinterpreted? Is that ambiguous? Is that so really loads and loads of, mm. of editing and, and, and making sure that everything was backed up with research and, um, and helpful, mm. you know, that, that, that I would actually give useful, helpful information. So is the, the book um, suitable to teachers who want to teach all kinds of young singers, uh, like from every genre, or is it specific to yeah. classical? No, it's absolutely not genre-specific. Um, none of my training is genre-specific because it's, um, it's, it has to be tailored to the individual anyway. Mm. So, and there are people who are very good at teaching certain genres. You know, there are people who do musical theatre courses or who do pop and rock courses. The people, you know, the people are good at that. Um, I'm doing more of a, um, this is how voices work and this is how to get the best out of them. Um, and also, this is how people learn. And that's where I've been going recently with a lot more of my research, mm. is looking at the whole learning process you know I realized training teachers um I had never done teacher training so I didn't have I didn't know any educational theory so I've had to go in and and go do all that from scratch <laughs> yeah loads and loads of educational theory and then looking at motor learning theory and looking at so many different aspects of the whole neurology of learning mm -hmm. so what surprised you about that field um a lot a lot a lot um that the the 
body, as far as we know, and we have to put a caveat here that we haven't done motor learning research on singers because singing has too many variables. If you're going to do research, you've got to have something quite simple like throwing a dart at a dartboard or hitting a golf ball into a hole, you know, with, with very few variables. And teaching people to do simple motor skills we know now that the brain responds to an external um, idea rather than an internal process. So we focus on the goal. We focus on the dart getting to the dartboard. We focus on the dartboard and where we want the dart to go. We don't focus on what our wrist is doing and what our arm is doing. So any focus on internal maneuvers is less helpful for the learning process. Now, of course, as a teacher, you need to be aware of all the internal maneuvers because sometimes it's not working, mm. right? And so people come with, with all sorts of baggage. You know, if we, we very rarely get a blank slate walking into our teaching studio. Mm. We get people who've been given information or have belief systems or, you know, they've got all sorts of complicated stuff about how one should sing. Mm. So you have to do quite a lot of unraveling I'm working out why, now why isn't that working? Why, why when they do that, do they pull their jaw forward? Why when they do that, do they tense up their tummy muscles? Why, why and so you, you have to unpick everything and know exactly what's happening from a functional point of view. And then put it back together again and enable the singer to um, have an, an outcome which is the goal outcome which is what does it sound like mm. what does it sound like what does it feel like who am I who do I want to be what feeling do I want to portray here mm. that's ultimately what it's about so have there been any new strategies that you've incorporated into your teaching as a result of this research you've been doing loads loads and loads yeah can you give us a couple so, of examples? Yeah. Thinking about, oh gosh, can't think of an example. Thinking about um, an external goal might be, um, so perhaps working on um, getting some upper frequencies ringing in the sound. Yeah. Um, you can either work on tongue position and, um, or you can work on, getting vibrations inside the head possibly or you could aim for something that makes the room sing back at you um you could aim for something that was really exciting you could start with a noise that is an excited noise a really excited whoop mm. and then sing with that and then you say, what did that feel like? What did you feel? And the singer might say, well, I actually felt a kind of buzzing on my hard palate. I say, okay, great. But if I'd given you that instruction, it wouldn't have worked. You wouldn't have got that. So now you know that when you go for this really excited whooping sound, you're going to get a buzz on your hard palate. Great. So that's your hook in. You know you're doing it right when you get that. Mm. I used to get my, my back molars would would vibrate would ache when I was getting the right when I was hitting the spot mm. but I couldn't make my back molars ache mm. I, just, I just knew that they would if if the right things were happening 
Yeah. And it's a big problem, isn't it, with singing is it's so proprioceptive and um, there's also culturally this whole mystery that's wrapped around the ability to sing, you know, either you can or you can't or some people are born with the gift and some people aren't and then there's the people who come along believing that they're tone deaf, whatever that means. And there's a lot of psychology but then physiologically it's also complicated because we can't see our instrument and and the to control it also requires things that whilst we might do those naturally, we aren't used to controlling opening and shutting our vocal folds or controlling yeah. the height of our larynx or thinking about I can remember the very first time I felt that concept of shifting my sound forward, whatever that meant. It was in the middle of a gig and something happened and suddenly I went, oh, my gosh, I just felt that all vibrate in the front of my mouth. I think that's what my teacher was telling me to do when she was asking me to bring the sound forward. And I honestly had never contemplated the idea that you could shift sound in that way so foreign mm-hmm. yeah but that might have been your tongue position right that did that you know it, it could have been all sorts of different variables right and if she had maybe said that I could have potentially got there sooner yeah and once I found it I could get back there again um I've, I just I don't know I remembered the shape or I don't, I'm not really sure what I what I was using as my gauge. But I, I do remember if I could experience it, I could usually get back again. So how does, because um, I know you also do work with people from a rehab point of view. So how did you get involved in that? I've always been interested in medicine because I came from a family full of doctors <laughs> and uh, and that was going to be my route when I was younger. I was headed for that and I decided I didn't want to do all the learning because I'm not very good at remembering stuff. (laughs) I'd seen my brothers go through all their anatomy exams and pharmacology exams and all of that and I just thought I can't do that. So, um, But I had really grown up in that world of of, uh, doctors everywhere. Mm. Um, And so I've always been interested in health and helping singers to get over problems in their voices either um, health related problems or just technical problems that have resulted in some kind of dysfunction it's really really rewarding getting singers back on track Mm. and giving them some tools to work with recognizing what the problems are saying it's not your fault. These things happen. And I think that's so important because singers will blame themselves. It's something I did. I did something I shouldn't have done. And there's all this, this blame and this guilt. And it's just these things happen. Everybody gets injuries. Everybody gets problems. And learning to learning what your own um, vulnerabilities are and learning how to manage them is such an important part of being a performer. And I always say the ones who've had problems, and every singer will have a problem at some point, right? So let's get that out there. Um, When you've had a problem and you've got over it and come through the other side, you are such a stronger and wiser person for it. 
And that sounds really difficult when you're in the middle of it and your voice is dysfunctional and you can't, you've got no top and you can't do what you want to do and you're having to cancel work and all of that. Knowing that actually at the end of it, yes, things will sort themselves out and it'll, you'll be able to have a better voice. It's, uh, it's a very important message mm. to get through to people. So as well as that, what, what do you think um, singing teachers who are listening to this should be aware of or consider when they're working with people who may have some vocal injury or be heading in that direction? Uh, awareness is really, really important. So awareness of small changes to a loss of upper pitch range or a loss of middle of the pitch or the voice getting slightly breathy, um, unable to do uh, dynamic variations, so singing very quietly or very loudly. Um, Sometimes um, an inability to get a clean onset. And so all of these things are clues, running out of breath or stamina. When I I had a a voice problem when I was younger and there was nothing wrong with my voice. I just got tired really quickly. So I'd sing for 10 minutes and feel absolutely exhausted. I'd feel like my voice had been singing for two hours. Mm. That was the only symptom I had. And that was just a muscle tension issue, which is the most common problem with singers. It's when the, the muscle function gets out of balance and one, one sort of group will work a little bit harder than they need to and one group will, will get underused. And the ones that are working harder just get stuck, they get tense, they get tight and the system gets out of balance and doesn't work efficiently. Mm. So that can be the symptom for any of those um, vocal issues that you might hear the the next important thing is not to try and diagnose so if you're a teacher and somebody's lost the top of their voice or the top of their voice suddenly sounds really breathy don't say oh I think you've got a bit of edema or oh you might have some kind of nodules or a polyp you know you don't know no I don't know that I can listen to a voice and uh, and I don't actually know what it is until they go and see a, a specialist consultant who does an endoscopy. So looking with a camera into the throat. And that's really important mm. that we know that. And once you've got a diagnosis, which may or may not be the right diagnosis, there is that. <laughs> um, you know, there are certain consultants who we really trust and there are some who are you know, they're just not experts in that area. How would Um, you recommend that a teacher goes about finding somebody who would be appropriate to send a singer to? There are two organisations that have lists of recommended voice clinics and recommended practitioners, and they are the British Voice Association and BAPAN, the British Association of Performing Arts Medicine. And both of them, you can look them up, look up their websites, and you can go on and have a look at their listings. And that's really the best thing to do because if somebody, as a, if a practitioner is on their list, they know what they're doing. So when you're working with rehabilitation singers, what do you think are maybe the top few things, two or three things that you feel if they could engage those things habitually, they're going to ensure that they recover and, and maintain a better vocal health. Is there any 
particular tips that you feel are important? Yeah, so I mean, I will always begin with overall work on breath and body. So, and again, it's it's balance. It's not effort. It's not making the breathing muscles work better. It's it's just getting rid of the unnecessary tension and reminding the body what efficient use feels like. So, um, and it might mean lying on your back on the floor for 45 minutes, just hissing and buzzing and making little humming noises. It might be as, as going, you know, going back to basics like that. Um, but just to, to remind, remind the body of how little it needs to do. Because we have all these triggers, um, you know, habitual triggers in the, the brain, which say, ah, oh, singing, singing because I've had a problem, I'm going to have to work harder because it only works if I push or, you know, and that's subconscious. There's no, nobody's doing that on purpose. Mm. It's just a pathway in the brain. And so we need to relearn those pathways. And it's just a question of repeating the good until the bad just kind of withers. Mm. it's a bit like gardening you know you just water the seeds that you want to grow and you keep watering them you keep nurturing them and after a while the ones that you don't want will just give up and go away <laughs> so, so that the breath and body and then working on um we're working on what they can do so if there's an issue with onset um and they're overworking and there's a tension find a part of the voice that will work well and go through that go over and over and over what does work well on a vowel that works on you know whatever just just find that and then you can start extending outwards so if the problem's at the top of the voice you don't go to the top of the voice you go to the bit that they can do and that not only reinforces the right motor patterns in the, the brain, but it also boosts a bit of confidence. So that rather than bashing away at something you can't do, you feel good about what you can do. And then confidence is everything, isn't it? Uh, with healing and with recovery, as soon as you stop being frightened and start feeling confident, then your body will heal. But as soon as it's frightened of heart hurting itself or frightened of getting it wrong, it's very, very difficult. So there's an there's a equal, if not greater, importance on reassurance. Um, and not fake stuff, you know, it's, but it's just reassurance. You know, this is all right. We can work on this. I will help you, you know, by the end of, this session there will be things that you feel confident that you can do and that uh, that I, I think sending somebody out at the end of every session feeling that they can do something that they couldn't before is very important for every single lesson you give mm. even if you're doing a total rebuilding of somebody's voice they've got to go out able to able to do something um, I was listening to a, an interview uh, last night, actually, with uh, a couple of singing teachers. And one of them said, if you're doing a complete reskilling of somebody's voice, it's a little bit like having your house invaded by builders. At the end of each day, they have to sweep up and turn the water back on. 
so that you can actually function that night before they come in and destroy everything again the next day. So you have to send somebody out of the lesson able to function. Hmm. So I just was thinking about... um your work, well, work working with young boys, one of the very common questions that we get is, first of all, can I do a boy harm if, I'm, if they're having singing lessons during the, you know, the pubescent change? And then what can I do with a boy who's going through the pubescent change? <laughs> and there's just a couple of things. Well, first of all, is it harmful? Um, I think that would be important to ask. And then secondly, what are a couple of tips that you could give teachers to get started with? And then obviously we want them to buy your book as well. Mm. (laughs) Um, Well, harm is a very emotive word. It's like damage. And the kind of harm or damage that we can do to voices is mostly just bad habits. It's getting into bad habits. It's extremely unusual for a voice to be damaged beyond repair. Voices are very good at sorting themselves out. You know, hearing, once you've damaged it, you can't get it back. So that, you know, that's a very important lesson for youngsters to know not to listen to too loud for too long. But voices will recover. They're amazingly resilient. So... That's why I think in the past, kids have been used and abused a bit, uh, partly because they'll kind of sort themselves out in the end and also because they're disposable. You know, you've got a fresh load coming through. So people have used inappropriate practice with teaching children. What I say is um, really with, the, with pre-puberty, um, it's quite straightforward. It's, it's, um, you can do quite a lot of advanced technique, actually, with, with children of that age. Um, once boys hit puberty and the voice starts to get lower as the larynx grows, um, you notice, first of all, just a slight lowering of pitch, and then there's a, a period of instability. Uh, my son is right in the middle of that at the moment, He's 15 and he's going through this very unstable voice part. He's not a first study singer, so he's not, he hasn't really trained his muscles to, to work well in that area. And it's quite funny listening to him because all the boys I've worked with before have been trained singers. Um, so it, you get this period of instability and then coming through the other end with a voice that will then develop into a sort of tenor baritone bass. Um, the important thing doing all of that is to use the lowest comfortable singing range. Go with where the speaking voice goes because your speaking voice will always go to the low, lower pitch range to the bit that's most comfortable. That's why it goes there because it's most comfortable for the larynx to operate on the, in the main in the lower pitches. And the higher pitches are used for extremes which is why they're exciting. Mm. Uh, but so when a boy starts, his voice starts to, to get lower in pitch, he may still be able to sing high. He may still hold on to that. And it's, it's sort of morphing into a kind of falsetto sound that, that we can hear in adult males. Um, at what point should he stop doing that? That's a big question. And I say sooner rather than later. Okay. 
because as he's hanging on to that high singing voice, day by day, there isn't much of a difference. But over a six-month period, he's really transformed the, the balance of the muscle function. And he's having to do, to make incremental changes day by day that over a period of time are adding up to something that's really um, much more um, effortful than he needs. And this was something else that came out of my doctoral research was looking at boys, comparing their voices over a, a long time. So we had them the age of 10 and then going through to the age of 13 or 14. And, um, and although some of them can still sing high and they still sound pretty good, it's not as good as it was when they were 10. And it's not as efficient. The, the larynx is having to work an awful lot harder. And because the larynx is having to work an awful lot harder, they're using all sorts of compensatory habits to get that sound to function. Mm. It's, and I, I always say it's like boiling frogs. When you, <laughs> you drop a frog into boiling water and it jumps out immediately, but you put a, put a frog in cold water and bring it slowly to the boil, it'll stay in there because mm. we don't notice incremental changes mm. until it's too late. Mm. And the too late for that boy might be a sudden collapse or it might just be that he carries bad habits through to his adult voice. Right. Interesting. So, yeah, go down. Go down to the lowest comfortable pitch range. And then uh, in your book, I think you've got a whole lot of exercises and advice as well, haven't you? Yeah, there's lots of exercises throughout. Um, and also I've got a DVD series of films to go with the book, which show me using those exercises on real life children. Mm. And also demonstrating all the different stages of voice change with boys mm. uh, at all different stages. So you can hear what their pitch range is and where their voice is most comfortable. Yeah, it is a very great, great resource and people need to make sure they have it in their collection of books. It's easy to read. Yes. It's not a complicated academic text. And practical. It's, I think that's... Yeah. I, I get yeah, exactly. There's lots of practical advice there. So I was very lucky to, uh, to be offered the chance of, of a second edition recently. Right. And that was an interesting process going back to look at, look at it right. I've got a chance to change things. Mm. And, and what I did actually was I added loads and changed very little. That's good. Right. So there were a few things that I have really changed my mind about, you know, voice registers. I've, I've changed my mind about that and, and more research has come out. Um, so what have you gone from to? With regard to um, well, from a, just to a more simple model, actually, that, that has just two main registers that we use, mm -hmm. which are, you know, chest voice and head voice, if you want to call them that, or M1 and M2, or um, thick and thin, and whatever, you know, they've got names. And then within that, there are lots and lots of grey areas. So the skilled singer can make M1 sound just like M2 or make M2 sound just like M1. So there are times when we don't actually know. Mm. And if we don't actually know, does it actually matter? You know, if the singer's achieving the effect they want to achieve and doing it in a way that is healthy and sustainable, 
Good luck to them. We don't need to label it. Most people want to know because they want to be able to replicate it if they can't. I think if I think a lot of people are happy to accept the fact if it's working, that's great. Why? Mm. why try to fix something that's not broken but I think for many of us in in the teaching world it's more a case of well I know I can do it or I know that these lots of singers can do it but how do I teach someone who can't do it you know what is it that they're doing or I'm doing that I need to be able to then pass on yeah uh, yeah you know from my research that answer is still very much hanging in the air (laughs) Well, that's a difficult thing because when you've been teaching for a long time, I know what I would do and I know, you know, I would tie a bit of this, bit of that. I mean, I always say every single lesson I give is an experiment mm-hmm. and, and we try things out and they, they work. Now, of course, all my experimenting is um, it's with knowledge and it's with having done it for many, many years. So now I'm training teachers I'm having to analyze what I do and what those processes are um, so what I would do with a singer who was struggling in that particular area mm. and that has been the challenge for me is is actually trying to analyze and articulate so you can what, pass it on to a teacher yeah, yeah. So tell us more about that work that you're doing. You're working, um, helping teachers who are doing MA in vocal pedagogy. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, this, that's a very exciting uh, development that we now have an MA in voice pedagogy, which is the first in the UK. Mm. And um, it means that the uh, the teachers coming on that, and it's not just singing teachers, actually. Some There are... Um, there's an osteopath, there's a massage therapist, there's a couple of speech and language therapists. There are people working in, obviously, in all genres of singing, people working with children, people working with in health. So people, you know, doing work on people with Parkinson's or um, chronic lung disease. or There's, you know, many, many areas of application mm. uh, that we can use. So there is that opportunity to do your own research project completely you're in obviously it is at master's level you're doing your own research but you it's very very broad mm. what's out there and uh, and we've got the first cohort of students are just completing now they're doing their final presentations this weekend and they're going to be submitting their their final dissertation in a couple of weeks time very exciting it is very exciting it is um, and they're all somebody was interested in doing an ma what do you think um constitute a a good candidate for the MA and how can someone prepare for that? Um, You've got to be so passionate about your teaching that you're prepared to spend two or three years working really hard and spending lots of money. Uh, But the outcomes are, uh, you know, beyond that. Education is, is never wasted. You know, it's always, there are always positive outcomes. You will be a better person, not just a better teacher. Uh, and, you know, there are some brilliant, wonderful teachers out there who've never done any training at all, but they would be even better if they had done some training. And then maybe so, be able to communicate that to others. Yeah. And everyone's got little gaps in their knowledge. You know, you might be really, really good at one thing, 
and big gaps I still have big gaps in my knowledge huge gaps I know and I, I've got to the point now where I just send people to somebody else to fill those mm-hmm. gaps yeah you know, and I know what I know I love about having a network of teachers is yeah. that you can do that yeah yeah it's, it's knowing being a singing teacher no, you can't be everything to everybody. Mm. So the, the Masters is a, is a very exciting project. But for people who, for whatever reason, don't want to commit to that level of, of engagement with academic work, um, I do run a lot of short courses. So um, in various subjects, I do one that's linked to my teaching children book, which is a three-day course for teaching young voices. Yeah. And um, I do... Um, a course in um, singing in the brain so that's all the 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 teaching and learning stuff and the neurology and the the the, um, a lot of the research that's coming out now about emotion and voice and mirror neurons and learning and there's so much amazing stuff that it's a real problem trying to fit it onto two days I tell you Um, and then uh, rehabilitation to helping singers to get skills to work with injured voices so understanding a little bit about the health problems that might occur with singers Mm. and then knowing how to go about working with them the sort of exercises that you would do and and the approaches one would take for that so I do courses for that Mm. and basic anatomy and function courses learning about what what does what so what it feels like find out about those courses from your website and have you got a mailing list as well I have. I've got a mailing list. And if you go to my website, um, which is Evolving Voice, so www.evolvingvoice.co.uk, all the courses are on there and you can sign up there for a mailing list, which means you get sent out little um, newsletters every so often with a film of me talking about singing and and information about courses coming up. Mm. Um, and the, the Masters is through Voice Workshop. So go to the Voice Workshop website and you will find out all about the, the Masters course and what it entails and when it's running. Yeah, and we have to There do is that. the possibility to do online training for that as well. Yeah, I was going to say we have to do a big shout-out to Debbie Winter and all the stuff she's doing that for that. Absolutely. She has been a phenomenal energy in the whole training of teachers' yes. world. Um, I mean, she has single-handedly, I think, shifted the landscape mm. in the UK. Well, she's, yeah, through voice work, the, the Voice Geeks Conference, which has been fantastic avenue yeah. for anyone doing the research and it's been a fantastic way of networking and finding out, you know, what everyone's up to. I love it. It is. It's great. And there is room for everybody you know there are lots of different courses going on you're running courses I'm running courses but there is room for all these because they're all slightly different Mm -hmm. and working at different levels and there are an awful lot of singing teachers out there Mm. and and so there is there's plenty of space and we're all learning from each other yes and well the other for me as long as a teacher is learning that's all I really care about because there's so many teachers including myself when I first started and and you were talking about the same thing that came you know started off quite clueless and and I don't think it's necessary anymore so you know I always think gosh imagine where I would be now if I'd understood as much as I do now when I first started teaching um 
But anyway, I'm glad it's available now. (laughs) The number of people who say that, and I've said that to myself, if I had had myself as a teacher, you know, maybe I would have carried on singing. But then if I'd carried on singing, I wouldn't have done the work I've done. And I think I'm probably more use as a teacher than I, well, you know, lots of people can sing well. Well, it's not about other people, is it? It's about how you, it makes you feel. Yeah. Yeah. And I do love, I love watching people grow and develop and great, gain confidence and gain skills and uh, just sort of launching themselves out into the world. And then, and now I've got students who are running courses and have that confidence mm. to say, I know about this. I'm an expert in this. Yeah, Yeah, it is great, isn't it? Yeah, it's like watching your children leave home. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that feeling, but um, I know that there are many singing teachers out there that uh, will relate to that. So it's been a really fantastic conversation, Ginevra. Thank you so much for your time. And I shall make sure that there's a link for people to go to your website. So where do they get your book from? From my website, Okay. Yeah, I've got. Well, there are two websites. One is for my um, my singing teaching and my book, which is just my name dot com, and the other one is my training provision business. Great. Um, but they're linked. They're linked. You just find if you just put my name in somewhere, you'll get it out. You know, from a search engine. There aren't that many Ginevra Williamses in the world. No. Well, so where does the name Ginevra come from? It's an old family name that's oh. been passed down the family. So it's an old English name, uh, originally from Guinevere. Ah, okay. And there are a lot of different spellings and you get versions of it all around Europe. Um, but it's, it's basically... And what are the different versions of how people pronounce it? <laughs> well, it's there's the Ginevre in France and there's an um, a Italian version as well. Both of those are spelled with a G. Mine's with a J. Um, there's, um, of course, Jennifer mm-hmm. is another variation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Genevieve. These are all the, the ones that people know how to pronounce, but I'm sure you get people pronouncing your name in a very different ways because I get people asking me all the time, how do you say her first name? Yeah, well, Andy, with you as well. Well, exactly. Yes, and how would like they know? Our legacy. <laughs> how legacy. <would> they- <laughs> Names you can't pronounce. Yeah, yeah, they'll apologise to me for mispronouncing my name. I'll go, I'm not being funny, but I wouldn't have pronounced it Lynn either. So, (laughs) no, how would you know? That's the French. No, it's fine. It's not an insult. Yeah. Okay. So, um, thanks very much, as I said, for coming on and uh, looking forward to hearing how all your courses go and making sure that the best teachers are coming along and learning from you in person as well as from your book? Well, I'm hoping to offer a discount. I am going to be offering a discount to all the members of BAST. Yes, great. If you want to come on to any of my courses. Fantastic. Um, so, and, and just to say thank you to you for everything that you're doing and for your wonderful open attitude. Well, I think I probably learnt that from somewhere actually I don't know if it was because my dad was a botanist that you and I get on so well. Ah. <laughs> we'll have to talk about that on another day. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That sort of inquiring mind that's always asking why. 
Okay, yeah. thank you very much. Thank you, Lynn. Bye-bye. Do, 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 do.